Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is caught for a touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us. We've got a packed show for you today. In segment one, Jim Etzel, the president of Sports One, they have put together a great activation and fan festival in Eugene, Oregon, Track Town 2012, around the U.S. Olympic trials. It's interesting, companies that sponsor sporting events now are looking for unique ways to activate their sponsorships around those sporting events. We see that coming up with the Olympics. We'll talk to Jim Etzel. That's what his company, Sports One, does. They help produce events, but they mostly help their clients activate their sports sponsorships around those events. Jim Etzel in segment one. In segment two, Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter, Finding Forrester, Radio, uh, Secretariat, so many movies he's done. We'll catch up with Mike Rich, find out what he's got in the works. Does he have another sports-related film coming down the pipeline? We'll find out from him, and we'll talk some Hollywood movie scene with Mike Rich in segment two. Segment three, Christine Brennan from USA Today. You've seen her on NPR and ABC. Uh, I'm going to talk to her about the conviction of Jerry Sandusky. We'll also talk about the 40-year anniversary of Title IX and the importance of Title IX. In segment four, Vince Papali, subject of the movie Invincible. You may remember him as the Philadelphia Eagle walk-on who made the team back in the 1970s. Great story. Vince Papali. Uh, Mark Wahlberg played him in the Disney theme movie Invincible. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. Vince Papali's got a great story. We'll talk to him coming up in segment four. Someone who's on my bucket list of people to interview. Got him on the show. Roy Firestone, the former host of Up Close on ESPN. I think he's the best long-form interviewer in the business. I have patterned my interview style after Roy Firestone, Charlie Rose, and James Lipton. So it's a great thrill for me to have Roy Firestone on the show this week. And the final guest of the week in segment six, Carrie Walsh, two-time gold medal winning Olympic volleyball player. She's headed to London, try and win gold for a third time. We'll catch up with Carrie Walsh coming up in the final segment of our show this week. couple of reminders. Visit my Sports Business blog. Download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can become our Facebook friend or follow us on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at SB Radio, but those links exist on the homepage of sportsbusinessradio.com. Joined in studio by executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Uh, NBA draft uh, happened this week, so I was excited about that. Seeing some new players come up, and it'll be interesting to see how the teams all morph around some of the top picks and how uh, how things move forward in the next season. A lot of young guys. Yes. 18, 19-year-olds, you hear the word project, and this guy's got a few years, and uh, but some exciting players and uh, a pretty deep draft. So it was interesting to see who went where. 
And, uh, you know, I think the NBA will be fun to watch with this injection of, of youth. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, the advantage with the younger player, I think, is you get you get a healthier kid. You get somebody that heals quick if they do get hurt, uh, other than Greg Oden, of course. But <laughs> yeah, other than that, it, usually uh, you get that, you know, the spry young, uh, young athlete in there, and it can help the team pretty quickly. All right, Griggs, we want to tell people about our Kickstarter project. If you're not familiar with Kickstarter, it's a great way to organize campaigns where people can donate to everything from, hey, I'm putting out a new music CD to uh, I just invented this product. We've put our podcast up online on Kickstarter, kickstarter.com. But if you go to our homepage at sportsbusinessradio.com, you can learn everything you need to know about our Kickstarter campaign. Essentially... We're asking for money from you, the people who value our content, to continue our weekly podcast. Um, there are production costs, Griggs, that you know are around our show. We've got some travel expenses. We chase some pretty big names in the industry. We have long-form conversations. We're a very unique show. We've been around since 2004. We want to take our show on the road as well. We want to go to sports NBA programs and sit down with the key decision maker from the world of sports at a university and have an in-depth live conversation. So there's some things we want to do, but at the core, we have costs associated with bringing you this content and bringing you this show each week. And I wish we could say it's just a labor of love, but there are some expenses associated with it. So we're asking people to pledge some money to our Kickstarter campaign, and we've got a month so between now and July 28th is when the campaign expires. You know, sports is a $450 billion industry, making it one of the top 10 largest industries in the United States. And what we try and do is allow people a peek behind the curtain every week on this show. We sit down with key decision makers, David Stern, uh, Don Garber from Major League Soccer, Mark Emmert from the NCAA, people like that. And... These are not conversations that many people are having in the format that we're able to have them with the people that we have on this show. Jack Nicholas has been on the show, Charles Barkley. So we talked to some of the athletes as well. And if you pledge money, you can get everything from, hey, uh, we're going to send you a T-shirt and we'll mention you on our website, to you can get a sponsorship on our podcast for a year. We'll even come visit your team or school or sports NBA program if you pledge a certain amount of money. So there are rewards associated with the Kickstarter campaign, Griggs. Yeah, you know, listen, we love doing this show, and uh, we'd love to get back doing a, a weekly podcast, and uh, I think that this show has a lot of valuable information and great guests, and you know, we look at a, a side of the industry that you don't hear on mainstream radio every day. You can't find stuff like this, which is why we're, you know, rated right up there at the top in the iTunes podcast, because people like... Like you guys, you listening right now, enjoy our show and our content. So we'd love to have you jump on there and uh, throw some money at us, and uh, we can keep this show going as a weekly podcast rather than you know once a month. We can bring it back to that weekly podcast. I know we have people that work in pro sports and minor league sports front offices that listen to our podcast every week. I know we have people who are uh, involved with sports NBA programs. I know we have people at league offices and teams that listen. So, uh, you know, again, if you find our content valuable and we're trying to, we're getting out there hustling every week, really trying to bring you some terrific conversations and some great insight, uh, please pitch into our Kickstarter campaign. Because if we don't 
come up with some funds to keep this podcast alive. It's not going to exist anymore, unfortunately, in the not too distant future. So if you value our content, please step up. Go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Look for the link to our Kickstarter campaign and contribute a few dollars. We really appreciate it. All right, coming up, we've got a terrific podcast packed with unique, valuable content. Stay tuned for that. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right, coming up later this week down in Eugene, the U.S. Olympic track and field trials will get underway. It's a big deal, not only for the economic impact here in Oregon, but especially in Eugene. And around the U.S. Olympic trials, you're going to have Track Town 12. So if you go to tracktown12.com, you can find out all the information about it. We're going to be talking to Sports One President Jim Etzel momentarily, whose company has been hired to put on Tracktown 2012. But Tracktown 12 starts on June 22nd, which is this Friday, gets underway at 11 a.m., and it runs all the way through the trials uh, till July 1st. And there's going to be music, there's going to be activities for the kids, there's food. Um, but it's a really clever way to bring sponsors to life. And as I always talk about in the sports business realm, you know, sponsors, instead of just putting your signage on an event, they're looking for unique ways to activate their sponsorship to stick out in the crowd from the rest of the advertisers. And Sports One has done a terrific job helping companies activate their sponsorships. Joining me now on the phone is Jim Etzel of Sports One, the president of Sports One. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great, Brian. How about yourself today? I'm doing really well. Let's start off by talking, before we talk about Track Town uh, 2012, tell us about Sports One. I mean, you're based in Beaverton, and you're a national sports and entertainment marketing agency. You do projects all over the country. Yeah, yes, we do. We have uh, been uh, very fortunate to grow our business over the last seven or eight years to, uh, you know, this this past year we did, I think, 24 events from coast to coast and uh, do a lot of work for Safeway and Nike. Uh, our business is growing with them, and uh, uh, we've done large and small events from Washington, D.C. to Houston to L.A. to Phoenix to Portland and beyond, so keeps us hopping. <laughs> 
Well, and I was just saying, sponsors now, instead of just wanting that commercial on TV or radio or having a sign at an event, they're looking for unique ways to reach their consumers. And you guys have done a great job, Sports One, at helping companies reach consumers in a unique manner. Yeah, that's been uh, kind of our calling card here that's kind of uh, led to uh, a pretty big uh, growth spurt for us over the last three years. We've had some great success uh, about really uh, – creating some uh, experiences for the consumer, the brand, that, um, that have really connected well uh, and, you know, resulted in, uh, you, know, you know, great brand recognition, growth experiences, uh, favorable impressions from consumers, trying to do things in unexpected and memorable ways to where when a consumer or a fan uh, engages with one of the partners that we work with, uh, that, uh, that we just deliver... Um, a connection or experience that's very unexpected uh, for that particular brand, which then results in just a, a more meaningful interaction that has a higher value. Jim Etzel, the president of Sports One, is my guest. Let's talk about Tracktown 2012. Uh, it's going on from June 22nd to July 1st. Tell us about Tracktown 2012 and what people can expect when they go to Eugene. Well, it's a one-of-a-kind uh, 10-day, 28 28- acre interactive sports fan experience it's more than just a track meet and uh you know we're calling it like best time ever best track meet ever best time ever best place ever track town usa and uh you know includes the obviously the competition eight of those 10 days uh we have four days uh, starting friday through uh monday over the weekend and then we have two uh off days where we uh the footprints alive one of those days then we pick it up again on thursday next thursday and take it through sunday july 1st and um you know it's the largest national championship meet in the world it's the u.s team is the hardest team to make uh it's tougher to win a spot on the u.s olympic team than it actually is um to uh, win a medal in the olympics the odds are 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 uh, against you uh, are, are more in your favor trying to win an Olympic medal if you make it to the Olympics and trying to make the U.S. national team. And then uh, with the Tracktown 12 Festival, it's open to all fans, even those without tickets to the competition. It's very, it's all inclusive. And uh, you know the Tracktown uh, Festival features Tracktown Plaza, and uh, that takes place right behind the West Grandstand surrounding Hayward Field. It's 20 acres around the footprint. And we got a little bit of everything for uh, all fans. Well, you're going to have a full lineup of daily concerts. There will be athletes interviewed on the entertainment stage. You've got video boards uh, showing the action inside of Hayward Field. Uh, I know you're going to have activities for the kids, pole vaulting, uh, trampoline-assisted things, tree climbing. So uh, fun for the whole family. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people say I don't have much interest in track and field, and uh, especially in 08, we experienced a ton of people that came in that had never been to a track meet, and they found out it was way more than that. It's really a spectacle. It's it's our way to celebrate the Olympics, which I think you know obviously have huge ratings in television, and they draw really outside of the normal day-to-day uh, sports viewer. Uh, to, you know, eyeballs to television sets, and and obviously Oregon, I think, leads the country. Uh, Portland, in particular, is the highest-rated Olympic uh, television market in the U.S. Uh, consistently year to year over the last 20 or 30 years. And so we, we create all these other things with the live music on stage. We've got the video boards, as you talked about. Then we just really have these 
incredible uh, activations, we like to say, around some of the partners. Uh, Safeway has this People Power Planet uh, activation where we actually have, if you could imagine, an eight-foot human wheel, which is a, a human version of a hamster wheel. <laughs> Get in there and you jump on it, and you can power up your iPhone, recharge that, and uh, or your BlackBerry or handheld device, and it also generates power for the entire um, uh, tent that has has a cafe in it. Powers all the refrigeration, so the entire thing, it's uh, you know self human power generated energy. And it's, that's a lot of fun. Nike is going to have an incredible activation that they're going to announce tomorrow in a press event, and it is. Let me just tell you, it's it's going to be unbelievable, and it's going to. Uh, people are just going to be completely wowed by the technology and uh, digital activation interaction that they've created. And then we got a London-themed pub, you know, featuring Deschutes uh, brews and uh, and you know, a great pub fair. You know, it has a double-decker bus out front, and then kids' activities. We have the Starters Block, which uh, really is an engaging uh, acre of fun for kids and uh, and kind of connects them to the sport with uh, many hurdle races and high jumps and sprints and uh, throw areas and so forth and uh, kind of educates them on the sport and everything from toddlers on up can participate in that. And you mentioned the, also the high jump deal, which uh, kids and adults will be able to get on this contraption will take you 20 feet in the air so you feel what it feels like to be a world-class pole vaulter and be suspended in midair and come down. So some fun stuff. So 225,000 fans expected to attend, 1,200 athletes, 600 members of the media, 1,800 volunteers. This is an enormous uh, event going on in Eugene. It is. It's the largest uh, event that is Olympic-related in the world outside of the Olympics themselves. And uh, it's a pretty complex event. Uh, it, uh, our planning on this started three years ago with, uh, with the Oregon Track Club and the local organizing committee. And, uh, and, and more than a few handfuls of those 1,800 volunteers you talked about. And it's led by Vin Lanana and uh, the track coach and associate athletic director at, at University of Oregon. And then uh, Greg Irwin uh, is a key player in the Oregon Track Club. And Dave Taylor, a former Nike executive, very involved in the Oregon Track Club. Those guys uh, and countless others just really um, uh, lead a great volunteer base. And then you know, companies like ourselves, uh, integrate into the planning phase and execution uh, elements over the last two and a half years of uh, to three years of planning, and it, it's it's very complex. I mean, it involves the homeland security and Department of Defense and 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 local law enforcement uh, to you know obviously coordinating 1,800 volunteers and and building this 20-acre fan experience with all the tenting and bringing in. I think 10,000 bleacher seats, uh, temporary seating, in essence, doubling the size of Hayward Field. It's And there's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> yeah, Sports One did this in 2008 around the U.S. Olympic trials, but this sounds like a much bigger undertaking uh, this time around. Yeah, 08 was, uh, was a huge undertaking. It was actually the biggest track and field event ever staged in the U.S. Uh, outside of the competition itself. Uh, not only was the competition the biggest ever, but uh, the event surrounding it was far and away the largest ever held in the States. And, and it was, uh, was probably the biggest track and field um, overall event ever staged in the world outside of an Olympics or World Championships. So it was, uh, 
it was a, a very complex and evolved event in 08. And obviously, um, it never been done Eugene or to that scale anywhere in the U.S. And uh, very successful. Uh, the vision we had turned into reality, which was a big sigh of relief for all of us on day one to see it come to life and work the way we had hoped. But uh, obviously, we had a lot of learnings from that, too. And uh, as well as it ran, we, we saw a lot of things that we could improve upon in, in 2012. And for those that had kind of a keen eye and even a casual eye in 08 that are returning, see a noticeable difference on the footprint. Uh, just uh, the whole um, complexity uh, of the engagement with the fans is, is evolved and, and uh, uh, everything from the uh, partner activations on the plaza to the entertainment stage and video boards and, uh, and hospitality venues. Um, I think a significant upgrade. Uh, we have a, a 40,000 more square feet uh, than we did in uh, 08 uh, for the fan experience, bringing us to that 20-acre number. Um, and that 40,000 extra feet are right in the middle of the plaza, so um, which is kind of the epicenter of the whole event. So Tracktown12, like the numbers 12, Tracktown12.com is where you can find out information about Tracktown12. And GoSports1 dot com is where you can find out more information about sports one keep up the great work it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun i'm sure a lot of work but a lot of fun in eugene over the next few weeks jim thanks for taking the time to join me i appreciate it thanks brian we'll see you down on the track podcast this show and any other past sbr episode at sportsbusinessradio.com back with more sbr after this Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right, we're back, and I am a proud board member of Ronald McDonald House Charities of Oregon and Southwest Washington. Every year, they have a fundraiser, a social and a golf tournament. The social is Sunday, July 29th from 5 to 9 p.m. out at the Tiger Woods Center. The golf tournament is Monday, July 30th, tea time 11 a.m. out at Pumpkin Ridge, and it's Mike Rich and friends, and Mike Rich joins me now, hottest screenwriter in Hollywood. Mike, how are you? Hey, Brian, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So you do such a fantastic job with your Mike Rich and Friends social and golf tournament every year. And maybe you can tell people a little bit about it. And I know you invite some of your Hollywood friends to come to Portland every summer to raise money for a great cause. Yeah, and they're, they're happy to do it. And it's the, the, the social in particular, Brian, has really 
has really become something special over just the past uh, three or four years. The first year I invited up uh, four members of the 1980 U.S. Olympic ho- hockey team, the Miracle on Ice team, and they were they were happy to come on out. And, and uh, John Lee Hancock, uh, the director of The Blind Side, came out the following year, and then uh, Kate Chenery, who is the uh, Kate Tweedy, who is the daughter of Penny Chenery, the owner of Secretariat, came out just last year. And what we try to do is really kind of give the folks who are there, and we have it out at the Tiger Woods Center on the Nike campus, just a peek behind the curtain at some of the some of these movies and 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 how they come together. And it, it's really an opportunity for folks to uh, you know find out how movies come together. Uh, the filming and some of the great stories, some of them oftentimes uh, pretty humorous. Uh, uh, and, and so the, the, the Sunday Night Social has really become, for me, uh, just a favorite part of the uh, golf tournament weekend. Well, and this year, former Philadelphia Eagle Vince Papali, who was kind enough to join me on the show yesterday, is going to be your featured guest. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. He's pretty great, isn't he? Yeah, he uh, really is. He's, he's something, yeah. Vince Papali is, uh, and, and for folks who've, who've seen Invincible, uh, you know, Mark Wahlberg portrayed Vince in, in that movie. And it's just a terrific story because uh, Vince, uh, you know, back when he was working in Philly and as a, uh, as a substitute teacher and a bartender just trying to make ends meet, uh, Dick Vermeil, who was the coach of UCLA at the time, football coach, got the job to take over a really, really struggling Philadelphia Eagles franchise. And one of the first things he did just to kind of stir up interest in Philly was to hold an open tryout. And Vince Papali tried out and was the only person that was invited to camp and ended up making the squad. And it was, you know, Vince still lives in the uh, general Philadelphia area, and people still revere him up there just because of what his story represented, uh, you know, overcoming the odds, an underdog story. And so I was really privileged to uh, get a chance to work on that screenplay. Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich is joining me. Uh, Mike Rich and Friends coming up July 29th and 30th, benefiting Ronald McDonald House Charities. For more information, you can go to rmhcorgan.com. Org. Mike, you've come such a long way from your days on the Portland radio airwaves, and uh, you've met some amazing people along the way. Your first movie, Finding Forrester, you got to work with Sean Connery. That's not bad right out of the box. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was pretty good. Uh, and uh, I'm always, when I look back on Finding Forrester, um, the, thing that, the thing that strikes me most about the experience with Finding Forrester is the fact that it really, you know, represented Sean Connery's uh, final film of his storied career. It, he had a couple of, of small uh, appearances after that, but I was always really, really honored that uh, uh, an actor of his stature, uh, that you know, the last chapter in that uh, in that career on screen was uh, was my screenplay. I really felt privileged by that. You've made several sports-related movies. How difficult is it bringing something that really happened to the big screen and, and you know, keeping uh, being true to what the real story was? Yeah, the difficult part, Brian, is finding out what aspect of the story uh, folks 
either either don't know or or didn't know as well as they thought. Uh, sometimes it's it's easier when take for example the rookie, which the reason why it was a little bit easier is that there were very few people who really knew Jimmy Morris's story as a as a high school teacher trying to uh, you know bring back his dream of pitching in the in the major leagues. Um, the more challenging ones are like portraying Herb Brooks in Miracle. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, there's, there's a ton of people who remember exactly where they were when they, uh, uh, you know, when they watched that game against the Soviets. But the, what they don't know is, um, you know, what Herb Brooks was thinking, you know, the night before that game. What happened when he went into the uh, the tunnel and disappeared right after the victory. Uh, and we we got a chance to to show that in the, in the film, so it's tough, you know, because you 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 want to be true to the story as best you can. A lot of times you have to compress events just from from a standpoint of time, uh, you know, put individuals in locations that perhaps they weren't in on that particular day. But I think as long as you're true to the the overall spirit and 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 try your best to be as accurate as possible. Uh, you know, sports and movie fans are, are pretty forgiving of that. Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich is joining us. So, Mike, explain, and I know this is a, a tough thing to answer in just a few minutes, but the, the screenwriting process. I assume studios are coming to you and they're saying, we need a screenplay, and then walk us through the rest of that process, because it's a long process from that process to when it, we see it on the, on the big screen. Yeah, it can be a long process. A lot of times... Uh, you know, I'll bring an idea to a studio. A lot of times they'll bring an idea to me. And most of the time, uh, it's just a germ. It's just a speck of what the story will become. So, you know, what happens right off the bat is the research aspect of it begins. It's my favorite part of the process, actually. And I either just go to spend time with an individual, if it's based on a true story, and that individual is, is uh, available, um, and so slowly you, you begin to just formulate, okay, what is the foundation of this story? Uh, there's a relationship dynamic, say, between a, a father and son that that's going to be a, a, a strong thread to this particular story. And then you just, and, and this takes several, several weeks, as you begin to formulate a general outline of the story. Uh, typically, once I begin writing a first draft of a, of a screenplay, it'll take me anywhere from three to four months to get that first draft. And then the rewriting begins, and that, you know, goes right up, right up sometimes into uh, filming. And that entire process can be, if it really, really goes quickly, it's 12 months to 18 months. Uh, but typically, you know, from the minute you, be, you type those first words fade in on a screenplay, uh, it's about a two-year process. Wow. And I imagine you need lots of quiet and concentration time. I mean, that's probably something where you really have to focus, right? Especially on a first draft, where a first draft is just starting with a white piece of paper and you are just formulating, you know, you, you want that, that's the most creative time because there's, there are things that you discover along the way. Uh, when, it, when I'm rewriting, it's much more precise, it's much more surgical, and there are times where I, I'll rewrite in a coffee shop. Uh, when I'm writing a first draft, uh, no music, quiet. The environment has to be really conducive to, to getting that story on the page. Uh, but rewriting, I can have all sorts of uh, noise surrounding me. 
So which do you prefer, an original screenplay that you develop in your own mind or an adaptation from a book or something that has happened in real life? You know, I've done both, and um, I, I, and I'm not hedging here because I, I there are aspects of both of them that I like. Uh, you know, if I'm writing an original screenplay, uh, and especially a, a fictional idea, um, the great thing about that is I can take that story any way I want. The responsibility that we talked about earlier that I always feel when I'm doing someone's true story, um, that doesn't exist there because it's a fictional story. Uh, the, the benefit of an adaptation, especially a, a, either a book or, or a life rights uh, story, um, is that you, you, you have that strong foundation of the story already there. You just have to find a way to, uh, to hang the curtains on the story, as it were. Mike, what's in the pipeline now? Is there anything that you're working on that you can talk about? There's a couple of things that uh, I, the one that I'm working on right now. I'm I'm really really excited about this, and it is an adaptation of a novel, uh, and it's a book that's called Flight of Passage. And Flight of Passage was a book written by a gentleman by the name of Rinker Buck. And uh, Rinker was 15 years old in 1966 when he and his older brother, who was 17, uh, came up with the idea of flying a Piper Cub. Airplane, and for those who who don't know, you know what a Piper Cub is. It's small, and it has roughly, I think, about 85 horsepower. And uh, and so they flew it coast to coast from New Jersey to California. And I just I, I loved the book so much when I read it. It reminded me a lot of the movie October Sky. Um, and so uh, so so I've, I've I've written that one and have actually been. Uh, you know, pursuing a couple of other projects as well. But that's the one I have my eye on right now. Well, that's exciting stuff. I'll be excited to see that. Let's talk more about Ronald McDonald House Charities. We're both board members. You do Mike Rich and Friends every year. Again, it's July 29th is the social at the Tiger Woods Center on the Nike campus, and that's where Vince Papali will be there as well for a meet and greet. And then you've got the golf tournament on Monday, July 30th. Tea time is 11 a.m. at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club. Such a fantastic charity. Maybe you can talk a little bit about why it's near and dear to your heart. Well, it's it's just, and, and you know this as well as I do, Brian, that once you go to a Ronald McDonald house, and we have two of them in the local area here, and you see these families, and, you know, for those who aren't familiar with what RMHC does, put simply, uh, families who suddenly find themselves, and usually it is suddenly, um, in, a, in a situation they couldn't have imagined with an ill child or a child that is in need of specialized uh, medical care that takes them away from their home. Sometimes you'll have families that are in Klamath Falls or Central Oregon or wherever it might be, and their day-to-day life is uprooted uh, because of the fact that, you know, this, this emergency has presented itself. And what they really need at that point more than anything in the world is is not a stale room, but what they need is a home, and they need to surround themselves with that type of environment. And that's exactly what these Ronald McDonald house houses do and the folks that have been there um, you know they, they just it's it's something that they value so much because not only is it a, a home-like atmosphere 
but just the support that they can draw from the, the wonderful volunteers and the staff at those at those places, along with the other families who are going through the the same exact thing, can be just invaluable and and, and an invaluable aid to uh, their children's recovery. No, you're exactly right. I think the support that they get from the staff at the houses, but then, you know, going through it with other families who are staying at the houses that are going through similar circumstances and then being in close proximity, literally you're two minutes away. You can walk across the street to where your child is receiving care. That's important for any parent to be that close to where their child is at the hospital. Uh, You've done a great job with this event for the last few years. It's really grown. And I know you want people to come out and uh, support Ronald McDonald house charities and, and have a lot of fun in the process yeah it is a ton of fun uh, we were talking about the social earlier but the golf tournament itself out at pumpkin ridge the combination of having pumpkin ridge on board and nike golf on board and and this particular charity this year another one of our valued uh sponsors is lexus and i'd really urge folks that if they get a chance go check out the website because this year we're having a a terrific raffle which uh um Folks, the, the winner is actually going to get to go down to Pebble Beach and participate in a charity tournament down there. And uh, we had the folks who went last year said it was just one of those once in a lifetime bucket list experiences. So, really urge folks to check out the website and find out all the details of the uh, of the golf tournament and social weekend coming up. Is your golf game ready for July 30th? Have you been practicing up? Uh, you know, I wish I, I wish I had one of those stories where I could tell you that uh, <laughs> my golf game has never been sharper. But let me tell you, my golf game has been sharper. So I'll uh, in the past. So I'll just have to be content with uh, uh, with doing something for a wonderful cause. Vince compared his swing yesterday to Charles Barkley's, so I think you might be able to beat him uh, on the golf course. <laughs> Vince, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing him. Uh, I've touched base also with uh, Dick Vermeil, who was the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles back then. He's going to lend a hand as well. He's not, not going to be able to come up, but also Mark Wahlberg and Greg Kinnear are going to send up some uh, uh, some memorabilia from the film as well. So it's really going to be a terrific weekend. So everyone should go online right now to rmhcorgan.org rmhcorgan.org or you can call 971-230-6709 971-230-6709 to register for the social the golf tournament the Lexus Champions for Charity Pebble Beach raffle that Mike was talking about Mike thanks so much I know you're very very busy and uh, you're doing a great job with Ronald McDonald House Charities and we look forward to seeing you out there on the 29th and 30th of July You as well. I always appreciate it. Thanks much, Brian. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. 
My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. Joining me now is one of the best reporters we have in this country, Christine Brennan of USA Today. Christine, how are you? Well, I'm fine, Brian. How are you? I'm doing really well. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Oh, you too. My pleasure. So when you saw the verdict being read on Friday night regarding Jerry Sandusky, what were your thoughts? Well, thank goodness. First of all, I think we all probably had that same reaction and I was not covering it. Um, I certainly, you know, covered the initial story and wrote columns for USA Today back in November as everyone, you know, kind of chimed in and we all were shocked by the news. And so, Brian, I think it was um, certainly a relief and confirmation of what we all kind of figured had happened and the horror of it, the the uh, just the massive scale of uh, abuse and and just just one of the more awful things we've ever heard of in sports, frankly. And um, you know, I, I know that I, I was out at dinner and ran into some people who were saying, "Why? Where's the jury? Why haven't they come in yet?" You know, because it, they deliberated deliberated most of Thursday, I guess, and then most of Friday. You know, what what's taking them so long? And I, I know there was, a, I'm sure, a few of your listeners probably felt the same way. So, I think it was a sense of, "Yay, okay, good. This is." I mean, there's no happiness, there's no joy, but um, the right verdict was reached, and uh, hopefully, this is you know, certainly something for those young men who were abused, and then, of course, now um, um, the vindication that they told the truth and that um, Penn State will probably have to uh, uh, cough up a lot of money to them, either in civil suits or in um, some kind of agreements, as, as they are hoping to do before they get to trial in those cases. Yeah, there's several storylines here. First, the courageous men who came forward and, and testified as to the abuse they received at the hands of Jerry Sandusky. That took a lot of courage. But now the civil suits that will likely follow, as you point out. You know, the thing that's amazing to me, Christine, is I've said from the beginning, anyone who was at Penn State, whether it's the administration, the athletic department, or the board of trustees, who had any inkling that this was going on and allowed this to happen, don't you think as part of these civil suits, those people are going to be removed from their jobs? Well, of course, some already have been, including uh, the big three, you know, Graham Spanier, of course, the president of the university. And then, uh, of course, there's the um, the athletic director, Tim Curley, former athletic director, and the other official, Gary Schultz. Um, uh, they're both Schultz and Curley are pending trial uh, for perjury in conjunction, in conjunction with the, you know, the, the whole situation. And, and, um, so either on leave or have lost their jobs. And then Spanier, the, the president, uh, you know, was, was ousted by the Wednesday, the same day as Paterno was back. The news broke on Saturday. By Wednesday, they were gone. So, um, but yeah, I think, I mean, if I were Curly and Schultz, I'd be scared to death because perjury in this case, you know, you were complicit, you knew, uh, allegedly, and that you did nothing. The magnitude of the verdict, the, extent, the counts, all of the, you know, the, just just a complete 
uh, as it should be, a complete tidal wave of support for those young men, it does call into question now everybody else. And, you know, I mentioned this in columns and, and panel at Penn State back in November, Brian, but I'll say it again right now, is that uh, the governor, you know, was the attorney general, right. and he did, didn't go exactly very quickly on this as he was running for governor. Was it because, I don't know, but was it because he was worried about investigating the great Joe Paterno during an election? I think this is an examination of a state that lost its mind. And I think it's an examination of a university, and I'm a proud Big Ten person, Northwestern grad, grew up loving uh, Michigan and grew up in Toledo, Ohio, so I'm all for the Big Ten. But what an embarrassment this is for the Big Ten, for Penn State, for alums, uh, because this looks like it's system-wide. Shame on them all, and if it goes up to the governor and he has to resign, so be it. Um, but I think it's just that reprehensible and, and what, what the cluelessness, right? I mean, just the absolute out of touch that they would let this go on and know about it and do nothing. It, it just makes you sick, frankly. Do you think that other universities around the nation, since this story broke, have really looked at the systems and processes they have in place to prevent something like this from happening? Or do you think there's a number of universities that will continue to live in the bubble that they live in and say, this can't happen here? Probably a little bit of both. I know my alma mater, Northwestern, I'm very involved. I know that uh, there were emails that were coming out about um, we want to make sure that the practices, you know, from the top down, I saw some of those emails, you know, were um, were all in place and that everyone understood how to handle things like this. I'm sure many other universities, Brian, also did that. I've got to believe they did, especially the public institutions, which Northwestern is private. But um other institutions throughout the Big Ten and, and around the country. So I, I've got to believe that they did. If if there's a university president who did not <laughs> do something, at least send out an email to top people or to get in touch with students or whatever, um, or athletic department people, although this doesn't just have to be the athletic department, but we do know that athletic departments are untouchable. And so if there is a university that didn't do this, you have to wonder what they were thinking or doing or what, what century they're in. But um, – I do think that the second part of your question, though, is also valid, that because these sports programs, athletic departments are so untouchable, that could this be happening somewhere else right now? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's horrifying to think about it, and I don't mean to be cavalier at all when I say that, but yes, um, with the untouchable nature of especially these football programs at these BCS schools, um, I think anything is possible. I will add one other thought. I, of all these years of covering sports, three decades, and and you know being around and being in D.C. based in Washington D.C., which is just a four-hour drive from Penn State, I had never been to Penn State until I went to be on a panel at the end of November um, about the Jerry Sandusky matter, the, the month that had just happened in Penn State, all the things that had transpired, and it was a four-hour drive for me. Um, it's I think a two-hour drive from Harrisburg, which is the state capital, but a relatively small city in the scheme of things. I think it's a two or three hour drive from Pittsburgh to State College, but I'm sure your list- some of your listeners know and can correct me. And it's, I think, a four hour drive from Philadelphia. I think you can make a strong case that there is no large campus in the country that is that far removed from big cities. Mm. And I think that that is, tells us something. The power of Joe Paterno, the power of that football program in the middle of nowhere, with all due respect to Pennsylvania, I'm an Ohioan, but in the middle of nowhere, um, I, I just can't imagine this happening where you are, you know, going on for years without one person telling a daughter or a son who would then know a lawyer in a big city. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I just cannot imagine this ever happening 
in, in our major metropolises. Michigan is so close to Detroit and in Ann Arbor. You know what I'm saying? And I don't mean to be against Penn State, but I was shocked at how removed it is from the real world and from reality and from big cities. Not that big cities are right, but at least big cities give you lawyers and doctors and psychologists um, in massive doses. And I'm afraid that poor Penn State needed so much of that and got none of it. Now, it's a terrific point to make. Let's talk about the legacy of Joe Paterno. We know many people think it's been tainted. It's irreparable. Obviously, Joe Paterno isn't with us anymore. You know, I had someone ask me over the weekend, Brian, hey, would you leave up the Joe Paterno statue or does that have to come down? I don't really have an answer for that at this moment. How would you answer that question? I think it's getting worse that it, each day that goes on, and I think the verdict and the magnitude of what we heard um, in the trial, um, I think, doesn't help Joe Paterno. Uh, you know, I, I, but having said that, I mean, he was a, he was obviously a great football coach, and he produced a lot of uh, excellent teams and also clearly excellent men. So I think you can have a mixed feeling about this, but overall. You know, to me, Brian, Joe Paterno put himself on a pedestal, uh, or we put him there. Uh, he was different. He was an educator. He talked about that. Uh, he lived in that same house with his wife and would walk to practices or games or whatever um, when he could. Uh, the library is named after him. So he's not one of those renegade football coaches that comes and goes. Um, you know, we might, there might be, I won't name any names, but there might be some guys you'd say, well, not, never would this be acceptable, but you would expect uh, shenanigans or worse or hor- horrific things like this to go on under Coach X or Coach Y or Coach Z. But Paterno, because he was uh, up there, he, he made himself better. He was better. Well, I, we have to hold him to a higher standard. And as an educator, he failed miserably. Um, to think that he knew because McQuarrie said it, and then Paterno admitted that he was told that something happened in the shower, and even though I think it was kind of garbled what Paterno was saying, McQuarrie said he absolutely told him it was sexual in nature. But even then, who cares? I mean, (laughs) there's a 10-year-old boy with Jerry in the shower at Penn State. First of all, that's got to be illegal on so many levels, and the insurance, you know, how swimming pools are and who can go where. Right. I mean, that alone has to be just a red flag. But then they're naked, and then, of course, as McQuarrie is saying, it's very sexual in nature. Okay, so Paterno hears about this, passes it on to his supervisors as if he has a supervisor in the state of Pennsylvania or a superior. Right. Um, you know, Paterno is God there. And then doesn't do another thing, Brian, never thinks about the kid again, or if he does, never does a darn thing, never wants to find out what happened. That's absolutely reprehensible, and that should be in the first paragraph of any history of Joe Paterno. I'm sorry, um, but it's just that's life. And Paterno was about more than football, supposedly. And uh, unfortunately, this is going to be his legacy, and that's he, uh, he did nothing when he should have done so much more. Christine Brennan of USA Today is my guest. She's written many terrific books. She writes a sports column. She's on TV, on the radio. She's everywhere. Let's talk about uh, Title IX, the 40-year anniversary this past weekend. Talk about the progress that's been made, but the progress that still needs to be made in the future. Brian, it's a, a great law. I think it's the most important law in our country in the last 40 years. And, and I say that, I'm sure people are saying, what? You know, <laughs> what? Well, of course, there was certainly we could have a good argument on things like that. But in terms of empowering the other half of our population, you know, when you think about it, for decades, generations in our country, we were telling 50% of our population, you cannot learn how to win at a young age. More important, you cannot learn how to lose at a young age. You cannot learn about teamwork or sportsmanship. 
we're not talking about creating Olympic athletes or, or professional athletes here. We're talking about creating better people. And if we're creating better people, we're creating a stronger, better United States of America, the greatest country on earth. And so for all those generations, we were, we were depriving 50, 51% of our population that opportunity. Richard Nixon changed that with a stroke of his pen on June 23rd, 1972. And where there were 1 in 27 girls were playing sports back then in 72, now it's 1 in 3. And, uh, and yet, when people say, oh, but it's deprived men, actually there's more boys and men playing sports now than, and more opportunities than there was before Title IX. Uh, never have women's and, and, and women's sports, girls' sports, ever stopped men's and boys' sports from growing. Um, it is unfortunate when uh, we lose the men's Olympic sports, golf, uh, you know, uh, wrestling, swimming, those kinds of sorts, men's gymnastics. No one wants that. The most ardent feminist on the planet does not want that. But let's not blame a great law for the incompetence or the foot dragging of athletic directors who've had 40 years, <laughs> not 40 weeks, not 40 days, didn't just show up last week. Title IX has been around for 40 years. And if they're cutting and slashing and burning men's Olympic sports, which most are not anymore, that's the other nice thing about it. They've resolved it mostly. But if they are cutting those teams, it's because of their decision-making, not because of a great law. So uh, obviously you can tell I'm, I'm kind of passionate about Title IX, and I think uh, women will run for president throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s in our country, president of the United States, be CEOs everywhere, and the common denominator for all those women will be that they played sports thanks to Title IX. You know, it's interesting that you say one in three females is playing sports, because I've heard a lot of collegiate scholarships for females go unused, and, and that was surprising when I heard that. Do you know if that's true or not? I don't think so. Um, I know there's a lot more, uh, you know, females and males, uh, you know, I mean, a lot more males are playing sports than females. Um, we know that. Um, the numbers, by the way, are the proportional thing. It's a, it should be based on percentage at the university. So I think the average, Brian, I had this in my column, which folks can find at C. Brennan Sports on Twitter or at my website, christinebrennan.com. Sorry about that. But uh, if anyone wants to find the column the other day, because uh, it got a fair amount of attention. And um, it was, I think, 56% of um, uh, enrollment at our universities around the country is, is female, is women, 56%. But only 44%, I believe, 43, 44% of athletes, of athletic opportunities are for women. So that means we're not even in compliance with the law as a country, and yet no one's going to jail. It's the most lenient law in the country. Showing you're working towards compliance is that you can, you know, be in compliance, which have you ever heard of a law? Civil rights? No. You know, so um, as far as uh, unused scholarships, I don't think that's the case. I think what we've, there have been stories over the years about, say, um, a rowing coach is trying to fill her team uh, for a college and goes out and finds some big, strong women and says, hey, come and be on the rowing team. And I know that people are horrified and want to blame Title IX for that. But I remember the days when I was growing up and couldn't play Little League, but that's okay. We didn't know what we didn't have as girls growing up in Toledo in the 60s and 70s. And all the boys, of course, could go to Little League. And I remember they would have like eight teams, you know, eight available teams to start out. And they would have to fold those teams into four because they didn't have enough boys. Point being, the carrot was there. Opportunity and space was there. That's exactly the same thing as the rowing story I just mentioned. But I think that's a very rare thing 
because now we've got so many girls playing sports in high school that they, they're just absolutely salivating, craving, and competing for these scholarships. And so many women are not getting college scholarships because we just have such a base now of, of, of uh, women playing sports. Christine, last question. Which female athlete in the last 40 years did more to open doors for female athletes than any other? Well, Billie Jean King certainly gets a lot of credit, and I give her tons of credit for beating Bobby Riggs uh, a year and three months after Richard Nixon signed Title IX. Uh, that really showed me as a high school girl, uh, just 15 years old, that you know i never seen a woman compete against a man in anything, uh, even be on the same stage in the sense of equal footing in, in life, in corporate world, you know, in any, any politics. And, uh, and so I saw that, and then, of course, Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs. Um, a lot of men think it was trumped up in exhibition, and a lot of women say it's the most important sports event of their childhood and their lives. And so a little difference there in Battle of the Sexes. So Billie Jean King certainly deserves a lot of credit. I was part of that ESPN um, 40 for 40. I was on a lot of those sports center vignettes and very proud of that. And I voted for the 40. And I actually voted Mia Hamm number one. Um, and she did become, she was number one. Because um, I feel that, uh, first of all, her she was born three months before Title IX. So she very much personifies Title IX, Brian. Mm but also because uh, soccer really is the sport of Title IX for girls and women and because she was the best player on the best team in the world, in the uh, best-known team and best team, the women's, U.S. Women's World, world Cup soccer team. So um, I think you can have a lot of different answers for that, but um, Martina Navratilova, Annika Sorenstam, Jackie Turner-Kersey, there's quite a few, uh, but at least those are two choices of mine. Great stuff, as always, from Christine Brennan from USA Today. Find her on Twitter at C. Brennan Sports. And also, uh, how do people find you online? What's your website again? Yes, ChristineBrennan.com. Just uh, my name, ChristineBrennan.com. And uh, Facebook, you can also uh, follow me there. Subscribe, Christine Brennan on Facebook and then at C. Brennan Sports. So who knew we had all these ways to find each other, huh, Brian? That's great. <laughs> When's your next book coming out? Well, I haven't even started it. I'm having way too much fun. I'm in Omaha covering the Olympic swimming trials, getting gearing up for the London Olympics, and folks can follow me on Twitter there and uh, doing the TV stuff, Brian, and doing your show. So I'm having a ball and, and uh, enjoying the day-to-day -day stuff and not uh, buckling down on a book at this point. Well, I loved your book, Best Seat in the House, A Father, a Daughter, a Journey Through Sports. It's still one of my favorite books I've ever read, so I can't wait for your next book to come out. Thank you, Brian, and I enjoy your show and love being on, and great questions as always. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. We'll talk to you soon. You bet. Thanks, Brian. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Woke up on the right side of the bed. What's up with this Prince song inside my head? Hands up. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. 
This is Sports Business Radio. I'm a proud board member of Ronald McDonald House Charities of Oregon in Southwest Washington. Every year, Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter, invites some of his closest friends to come out and raise money for a terrific cause. This year, Ronald McDonald House Charities has a social on Sunday, July 29th out at the Tiger Woods Center at the Nike World Headquarters. And then they've got their golf tournament on Monday, July 30th out at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club. You can go to rmhcorgan.org for more information. But Mike Rich has asked his friend Vince Papali, focus of the movie Invincible, to join him this year out in Portland. And Vince will make his way out here late next month. Vince, how are you? Oh, great, Brian. How you doing, buddy? Great I'm on the show. I'm a good company. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really excited to have you on the show. One of my favorite movies, I'm not just saying this, is uh, Invincible. I love that movie. I love your story of essentially going from a guy who watched Eagles games and played semi-pro football to a guy who worked his tail off and got on the field with the Philadelphia Eagles for three years. I think it's a great story. How did you think the movie turned out? I uh, did a great job, you know. Uh, when you, it's, it's sort of funny when you when you first um, read the script and, you, and you're going through the screenplay. And, and I know Mike was uh, Mike Rich was a tremendous contributor, and and, and he wrote in some beautiful pieces, uh, especially when he wrote my father into the script, who wasn't in the original script. And, and you know, you see it, uh, Brian, and the first thing you think, wow, wow, come on, this, you know, I, you know, this, and but. Then, as, as you read through it again, and, and you're through the sticker shock of it, and you say, well, well you know, that, that, that happened at a, t- at a time. And, and um, I, after it was all said done and, and, and seeing how it was produced and filmed and, and how it turned out and the response that it's gotten, uh, we're just ecstatic. And I, and I say we. I, I talk about my family and, and my friends and, uh, and certainly my wife, Janet who was an integral part of the whole process. So it's all good. It's, it's, I'm still pitching myself. And, you know, I'm heading out of my alma mater tonight and uh, to give a little speech to some, some softball kids that are there. And, and, and the irony of it, um, at Interborough High School, where I went to high school, is right around the corner from Max's. So um, the old Max's bar, I'm going to drop in there tonight, do a little surprise <laughs> drop in on the boys. Uh, all the guys were there 35 years ago are probably still hanging out in the same seats. That's great. And, you know, in the movie, everyone's so excited for you when you make the team and all the great things you're doing with the team. And I bet a lot of those people are still a big part of your life today, right? Oh, they sure are. You know, and it's sort of funny because uh, Friday I'm having an alumni golf outing with all the guys I played football with that are so proud of me, you know, and so excited for everything that's happened. But, uh, you know, and and I think one of the nice things is is that – they know I share that with them. You know, this this is a this is a story about any one of the guys I play ball with, anybody out there that had the dream. Uh, you know, I'm lucky to have done something that sort of had a little bit of a marquee value, and the timing was right, as Mike Rich will tell you. You know, all, all of it. Uh, you, know, you have to have a good story. You have to have a good script, but a lot of it's timing. It's what the uh, and and it's what the uh, the studios are looking for at that particular time. Yeah, Vince, tell that story. I mean, are you sitting around one day and you get a phone call and Disney says, hey, we want to make a story about your life. It's inspirational. How'd that unfold? Well, uh, I'm sort of sitting around one day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. No, really, Brian, it's, it's just sort of funny. I'm laughing, you know, looking back at it. Yeah, I was sort of sitting around. I got this phone call, but it wasn't from Disney. You know, the process is just a little bit different than that. 
uh, it was from a, a guy, Pete Stefano. Um, it worked for NFL Films, and he said, hey, the, uh, the Eagles uh, and, and the NFL want to do a feature on you uh, and tie you into Rocky's 25th birthday because he's turning 25 on, on such and such a time. And they, and they put this feature up uh, on Monday Night Football when the Eagles were playing the 49ers out on the West Coast almost 10 years ago. And uh, the, the, the next, Hollywood saw it. Next thing you know, producers are calling. And, uh, you know, you have to go through the whole process. You have to option off your life rights. And, and the guy I optioned it to, the executive producer of the movie, was Ken Mock, who created America's Next Top Model. And, and, and he brought in Brad Gann, who uh, wrote a spec script. Uh, they put it up for... They, they put it up for uh, auction, and this is sort of where Mike Rich comes in. The guys who had our screenplay uh, that took it into Disney were Mark Chiardi and Gordon Gray, who did Miracle, Rookie, The New Guy. You know, and Mike had a hand in Miracle and Rookie, and, uh, and their screenplay. <laughs> and there it was, you know, and they take it into Disney, and Disney outfit everybody out there in Hollywood, and next thing you know, it becomes a Disney movie in 2004, and it comes out Labor Day 2006, and... Uh, we haven't looked back since. It's great. And it's wild. It's the wildest run you can imagine. How much time did Mark Wahlberg, who played you in the movie, spend with you to really learn about you and get your character down? Uh, Brian, we were joined at the hip. Uh, as soon as we met, and he was the guy that was, it was determined he was going to play the role, um, he, came, he came up to me and said, Manny, I'm going to play you with passion and enthusiasm. I'm going to make you proud. I'm going to make the city of Philadelphia proud. He said, uh, th- this is this is really personal for me to do this role, and one of the reasons they chose Mark Wahlberg over some marquee guys was because he agreed to be uh, he-, he agreed to do most all the stunts. And um, aside from being a tremendous actor and a really good guy, he's a heck of an athlete. And uh, I actually worked with him two weeks prior to the movie with Jim Jensen slash Jensen from the Miami Dolphins. Uh, we worked and sort of morphed him into an NFL receiver, and then we just hung out. You know, we we played golf. Uh, we went out to dinner. You know, he came over to my house when I was having parties and just hung out with my neighbors and friends just to get to know me. And uh, to this day, we still have a tremendous relationship with Mark. If I if I texted him right now and just say, dude, what you doing? I'm at the golf course or whatever. He'd be back to me in the, in, in 30 seconds. So um, Mark and I uh, had a great relationship then, and we have a tremendous relationship now. I, I just love the guy. He, he was awesome. And and did everything we asked of him, uh, you know, from every different way, and never denied us anything. It was really special, too, Brian, and, and Mike Rich will tell you the same thing, is how personable he is and how he treats everybody with respect. Uh, there, there isn't an ounce of uh, prima donna-ness whatsoever in, in Mark Wahlberg, and, and that, that, to me, was really important. Former Philadelphia Eagle Vince Papali is my guest. Okay, so tell me about the meeting that you got to basically try out for Dick Vermeil, who was the head coach of the Eagles back in 1976. You had been playing for the Philadelphia Bell of the World Football League as a wide receiver. You get this tryout with the Eagles. Tell us how things unfolded from there. Well, what had happened is with the Philadelphia Bell, and there's a lot of irony there because the first game I played, uh, against uh, with, with Philadelphia was against the Portland Storm, and, and interesting. Dick Corey, it was yeah, yeah. Dick Corey and and Steve Corey, I know, is up in the Portland area coaching. You know, and so he might even be listening to this interview. I hope I'm going to see him at the tournament. But he and Mike are good friends. And um, anyway, uh, you know, there's that. And so I, I, I you know, there's a little bit of a process before that. I, I I qualified for the Olympic trials in the decathlon, but the score I had wasn't sanctioned. So I couldn't get into the trials. I got pissed off, and I started playing semi-pro football. 
somebody saw me in semi-pro football said, we're having a tryout for the Philadelphia Bell in the World League. Try out. There are about 800 guys there, and me and this guy from Notre Dame, Michael Lassie, were the only two that survived. And I wound up playing in the first game ever. Then after a year and a half, the league folds, and, and I was actually going to go back and continue working on my master's degree, which I was doing, and go back and coach and teach at Interpower High School, which is what I was doing. I was on a leave of absence. And um, then this tryout came and decided to take a run at it, you know. And, and a friend of mine called the general manager, and uh, Richie Iannarella, and he calls the general manager, Jim Murray, and Murray's, yeah, what the hell, put him on the list, you know. So when I got there, uh, Dick Vermeil knew, who, who had, had no idea who I was. Um, you know, I ran a 40-yard dash. I was clocked at 4-5. And uh, a lot of guys that were clocking it said, you couldn't have possibly run a 4-5. It's just not possible. You could have done that on grass. And I said, well, line it up again. And, and I ran it again, and I wound up running uh, not only 4-5, but one guy had me clocked at 4-4 on grass. So Vermeil saw that, and he just kept throwing me in one drill after another. And uh, after it's said and done, I got the phone call to come up to the general manager's office and sign a contract. And and, and it was just, uh, I said, so, are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. I, and, and Brian and I signed for 21000 I mean, Wow. It, it, yeah, it's fairy tale stuff. And But I, I had three and a half months to get ready for uh, to get ready for training camp. You know, the movie had three and a half days, so, you know, they, 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 they don't know how I were on that one. And um, yeah, I got to training camp, and uh, I guess to say the rest is history, and that's where they picked up with the movie, the, the three-agent tryout and the training camp and, uh, you know, the first home game against the Giants. Did you really play pickup football in the parking lots with your buddies uh, yeah. like they had you doing in the movie? Heck yes, I'm going to be going right by that field tonight. Wow. It's the, old, it's the old father and old field right behind the T-bar. They couldn't use a lot of the original names in the movie for legal reasons and this and that. So in the movie, instead of calling the T-bar, I was, it was a tankered in. You know, but they sort of, you know, they sort of, it's funny, it's cool how they squeeze things like that in there. But I'm, I'm going to be going right past that field. I'm, I am tonight going to be in my neighborhood where I grew up. And, um... It, it's, it's going to be very exciting. It's one of the reasons why I agreed to get out and, and, and speak to this group. And they're also giving out the Invincible Award tonight for this young lady from uh, Interboro High School's softball team. And it's just, I'm telling you, man, it's just too amazing. It's much fun. So you're doing a lot of motivational speaking now. You've written a book. You've beaten cancer. I mean, you've had an amazing life, Vince. Well, uh, yeah, it's all that, you know. And I'm, I'm sitting right out here, actually, at my son's school as he's uh, – Getting prepared to go into his sophomore year, uh, he, he just started his first official football workouts tonight. And, you know, I got kids. I have my daughter Gabriella is going to, and they're all coming out for the uh, for the event, by the way. And Gabby's going to Syracuse, and she made the Syracuse cheer team. And you know, there's a lot to live for. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to give back. And um, you know, and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll twist this around a little bit and tell you one of the biggest ironies of, of any of anything, because the main reason I'm coming out to Portland, of course. Is not only because of Mike Wrench and, and, and coming up and living some great memories out there, but also because of the Ronald McDonald House. And um, I was at the uh, grand opening of the first Ronald McDonald House ever in suburban Philadelphia, right off the University of Pennsylvania's campus. And today, I got a text from a young lady, from a woman, whose son I befriended at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, and they're coming up from Alabama for surgery. And... They're going to be there for 14 days. And take a guess where the parents are going to be staying. Ronald McDonald House. Ronald McDonald House. Yeah. 
the Ronald McDonald House. And I, I'm telling you, from Jimmy Murray and, and Stan Lane and, and uh, the guys that were the part of this, the, the Eagles Fly for Leukemia that got this whole thing running, and, of course, Ray Kroc, you know, down there in San Diego, who believed in it right from the beginning. And look what we have, and, and, and look what a great thing is. And so, so Mike Rich calls and says, hey, man, we're doing something for Ronald McDonald. If I have the time, I'm there. Well, we, you know, I'm a board member, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, and I'm so excited that you're going to, I'm so excited you're going to be out here. I want to tell people again, if you want to meet Vince, you can do it Sunday, July 29th, 5 to 9 p.m. out at the Tiger Woods Center at the Nike World Headquarters. There's a social. It's always a great event. And then the next day, Monday, July 30th at 11 a.m., Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club. Vince, you're going to love playing at Pumpkin Ridge. At 11 a.m., you can tee off and, and play golf. So if you want to register for the social or for the golf tournament, go online to rmhcoregon.org, and you can register today. Vince, I can't wait to meet you. Uh, I think it's great what you're doing, and I really appreciate you taking the time. You're, the movie was great. I love your story, and uh, keep up the great work. Well, I appreciate it very much, Brian, and all those uh, my, my friends out there in Portland. I can't wait to visit your magnificent city there. You know, from Jack Ramsey, I always had a felt an attachment with, with Jack being out there because Jack was the uh, the athletic director at St. Joe's College when I got my scholarship there. So, you know, our roots go way back. And it, it's sort of funny, you know, a lot of firsts. And uh, one the first team I played against in pro football, and, and uh, it's just a lot of good, fun memories. So I can't wait to get out there. I'm going to have my family... One thing you won't be excited about, you won't be excited about seeing my swing. I'm not sure who's worse, me or Charles Barkley. I think I could take Barkley one-on-one in in golf. Have you ever played with Barkley? Yes, I have. Yep, yep, I have. And uh, he had that uh, same graceful swing back then when I played as he has now. I think it... (laughs) My money would be Uh, on you, Vince. (laughs) Yeah, my my money's on you. Yeah, but Charles will out talk me. He's a beauty, man. We love Charles here, so uh, it's all good. But I can't wait to get out there, man. So it's going to be fun, Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vince. I appreciate it, and I really thank you as a board member for making the time to come out here and raise money for Ronald McDonald House Charities, too. That's great work. Well, you ought to be very proud of what you do on the board does. And anybody affiliated with Ronald McDonald House, you make sure you go on their website and get it out there and, 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 and see what's going on. And I'll actually put a link on my website. Now for Ronald McDonald House, you can go to VinceMcCauley.com and we'll check that out. But uh, it's a beautiful thing and a great thing to be a part of. So thank you, buddy. Thank you, Vince. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, right, buddy. We'll see you later. Thank you. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at SportsBusinessRadio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes, 
and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Let's go to the phone right now. On my bucket list of people I've always wanted to interview on this show is my next guest, uh, he's a seven-time Emmy Award-winning host. He's one of the best interviews, in my opinion, the best interview I've ever seen, sports or otherwise. Roy Firestone joins me now. Roy, how are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for taking the time to join sure. me. You know, I watched your show growing up, up close on ESPN. I think you're the best interviewer I've ever seen. And you interviewed so many interesting people, whether it was Ted Williams, Lyle Alzado, people like that. And I want to know, what was your secret to getting people to open up to you? Because you did it unlike anyone else. Well, first of all, thank you very much. And I appreciate it. And I I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, First of all, I think I did it a lot. I'm, I'm not trying to be falsely uh, humble here, but I did it a lot. I interviewed over 5,000 people. Uh, over that period of time, I think rapport is a key word. It's not just getting the right questions. Anyone can write a question down. And by the way, I never wrote a question down. I, I would have key words to remind me of subjects that I wanted to talk about. But never wrote a question down. Um, I think rapport is important. I think comfort is important. I think uh, research is extremely important. Curiosity is important. Listening is probably as important as anything else. But I find that people really have a story to tell. And most of my sports interviews um, had less to do with statistics, facts, games upcoming, and people you know, talking about other teams or other players. that they, they did talk about that, too. But we tried to talk about life. And I think people mostly have a rich life that needs to be uh, – exposed or, or if they are interested in exposing and talking about it. And I think when people come to a television show, in my case, uh, they're prepared to talk about almost anything. And when they weren't, they would tell me in advance. But mostly, I, 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 there was an openness and there was a rapport, and I think that was key for me. Yeah, there's the well-known scene in the movie Jerry Maguire where Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character says, I'm not going to cry. You're not going to make me cry. Right. And right. it seems like there were many people that came onto your show, and they just knew when they came on your show you were going to take them to a place that they probably hadn't gone in other interviews. Well, first of all, I, I, I love doing Jerry Maguire. I have a great sense of humor about myself and the show and that scene. It's done a lot of great things for me. But I think at times people really misunderstand uh, my my whatever it is I brought to to the show was not in the quote ability to make people cry, and I, I know that you weren't implying that either. But that people have a tendency to 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 want to summarize people's careers or define people or abbreviate people by a moment. And Jerry Maguire, of course, was a uh, was a great thing for me, and it continues to be a great thing for me. But of the 5,000 people who were interviewed, or more than 5,000, almost 5,500, only 25 we counted. We actually counted one time, uh, actually wept on the show. That's not a very high percentage. That's, that's, that's a decimal of a decimal point. Um, but I do think that what I did do 
was afford people a, 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 a kind of environment where they could share some deep thoughts about their lives and maybe emotions. Um, but I don't feel I, quote, made people cry. And, and people always have the tendency to use that phrase, Roy Firestone made them cry. Uh, I, I don't think anybody ever, whoever was emotional, male or female, came on my show unless there was something brimming under the surface that they wanted to get out emotionally. Um, so anyone, it doesn't matter if it was Barry Bonds or if it was Lyle Alzado, I think that emotion is a very important part of sports. I also have a, a theory, that it's, it's a rare theory that I don't know people talk too much about. I think people play sports, especially competitive sports, um, not just for the love of the game, but for the love in the game. They, they have a need to be accepted and loved and appreciated. And I think sometimes people came from tough backgrounds or they had some terrible loss in their lives, and they lost some part of their love in their life, uh, and it was devastating. I was reading about a ball player today who's about to be drafted in the NBA. Uh, who lost his mother and grandfather, I think, within about six, six weeks or something, uh, tragic, so tragically. So, I mean, people would always ask me, you know, how do you get them to cry? I never felt like I got anybody to cry that what didn't have under the surface an emotional need to express that. Seven-time Emmy Award-winning sportscaster Roy Firestone is joining me. Roy, is there an interview that you did, those 5,500, that stood out to you, the one that you're the most proud of, or one that stuck with you more than others? Well, it's hard to pick one. Uh, first of all, let me also reiterate that I'm also uh, still working on TV uh, with a brand-new series called L.A. Tonight, which will be on public broadcasting, we believe, in the fall. It's currently starting in Los Angeles. Anybody would like to see some of my current shows, can go to kcet.org. Uh, that is the television station here in Los Angeles, and we've interviewed so far people like Burt Backrack and David Foster and Andre Agassi and Debbie Allen and people like that. And uh, we're very uh, Chris Bodie. We we just had a great show with him, and it's not going to just be sports. It's going to be sports and the arts, which I'm very excited about. But to get back to your question, I think of the 5,500 interviews that I've done, people like Arthur Ashe stood out because of their their courage. Courage is an important quality for me. I, in, in personal integrity and courage and in, in, in increasingly in the world of sports, increasingly lack of courageous people except in the games themselves. I think that this guy stood up for a, a tremendous uh, cause in terms of uh, fighting uh, oppression and he was one of people like uh, um, you know, I, I would say Muhammad Ali, to a lesser extent, not, I'm not putting Muhammad Ali down, but I mean, in terms of his his desire to to stand up for issues, most of that happened back in the '60s. Arthur Ashe did it almost to his dying day, and uh, and I love Ali too, by the way. He was one of my favorites, but I never had Ali on the television show. I only had him as an interview over the years as a as a as a young reporter. So I would say that Arthur Ashe would be one. Jim Valvano was another because he talked courageously about cancer. Um, and, you know, there were dozens of, of people that I thought very well of, um, but I think those two perhaps stand out more than, than others. You know, Ted Williams, Lyle Alzado, those were great interviews. The one that really stuck with me, Roy, is former Miami Dolphin running back Mercury Morris. It was almost oh, like it was a confessional. His conversation with you, things he had wanted to say his whole life, he told them to you, and I thought it was a real sobering and well-done interview by you. Well, thank you. I, I've always enjoyed Murphy Morris. I always felt that G 
Gene Morris was would have been one of the great broadcasters, one, former athlete broadcasters ever in the American sports landscape. I really believe that and still do to this day. Um, I would love if anybody has that show and wants to put it on YouTube. I'm missing that one. I really, really like the shows. It was after he was incarcerated for, uh, or he, he believes that was wrong, wrongly accused for being incarcerated for uh, drug uh, um, trafficking. But he was very emotional about, uh, he got very emotional towards the end about losing, about being in prison when his parents died. And it was an extremely emotional show, but he also talks about the loss of his part of his life because he admitted using drugs but never trafficking drugs. And uh, he talked about the loss that he'll never get back, the family that he'll never get to see again, the friends that, uh, that have gone away. And... Um, I thought it was one of my favorite shows, and I'm glad you brought that one up because he is really one of my most favorite people ever in, in sports. I just really, really think he's special. Roy, uh, what's the advantage to sitting down? I mean, you, you had a half an hour or so to sit down with someone in long form. The problem, I think, with a lot of interviews today, you've only got three, four, five minutes. You've got to try and cram a bunch of information into that amount of time. And I think the, the art of the interview has almost become lost in what we see in late-night TV. So maybe you could talk about that for a moment. Well, there is no art of an interview left. It's four questions. It's mostly... It's mostly comic. If it's on a late-night show, it's only comic foil. It's, if you can be funny, uh, you're mostly going to be on a show for four or five minutes tops. It may be, if you're lucky, if you're a gigantic star like on David Letterman, who I happen to enjoy a great deal, you might be on for two segments. And uh, it's rare. I, I, it's interesting, though. I think Letterman's trying to get more substantial in his interviews of legends, like Bill Murray. I saw the other night he had a, a lot of questions about movies and things like that. It's a soundbite medium now. It doesn't have to be that way. I think people really do want substance, and I think that people do cry out for more than three or four questions. I think if you go online now, most of the things that you see online are shows where there were substantial things said, not just, you know, we're looking more and more at more incendiary comments go on the Internet. If a guy calls another one a jerk, guaranteed it's going to be on the Internet with 150,000 hits in three minutes. But if a guy says something reflective and wise and has some humanity to it, you probably won't find it unless it's on a long-form interview show. And I think, we're, I think we should be past the point, and this is just my opinion, but I really believe this in my heart, where just screaming out opinions about whatever is going on in the day, be it political or sports, and ringing bells and, and timing out within 30 seconds and a, a quote take is is there's more to, to broadcast journalism than that and i think interviewing is I, I don't want to sound too haughty about it but it is an art there is a kind of art to it and it, it to some people it's very easy to other people it's very hard but i think if you elicit something really memorable and worthwhile you've done a service to, to the broadcast profession i like to think that i brought a lot of those moments um, into to, into the broadcast world, uh, but I'm also you know not so egotistical to think there are dozens of people who did as well. I would just like to see it come back again. I'd like to see an all all talk channel, TV channel, not sports talk, all talk, all night, 24 hours, just different shows with different talk. Because the best television series that's ever been on television on in, in syndication was the Oprah Winfrey Show. It was essentially a talk show and a real long-form talk show, not just a soundbite talk show. 
No, I think it's a great idea. I will tell you this, and I'm not just saying this because I have you on the show right now, but you, Charlie Rose, James Lipton, those are the three broadcasters that I have patterned myself after and my interview style after, and I so much enjoy the long-form conversation, and I would love to see a channel like that, and I think you should be on a channel like that when it exists. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Those three you named are all excellent. There are many more, too, but I I think that... You know, Charlie is a fantastic interviewer. Uh, I, I'm a very research-oriented person. That's another thing. I don't know if I mentioned that in my list of things. I, no matter what it, people may think, I was prepared, very prepared. I always came, and I knew as much as I possibly could. It also left a lot of room for curiosity about people. But I, I see some of these broadcasters and some very famous ones who were very arrogantly saying, hey, I never do research, I never read the book, I just go on my hunches. Except the problem with that is you, you miss a lot, and you, you, you miss major storylines. Like, let me give you an example. I just had Burt Backrack, the legendary composer, on. If I hadn't researched and then really dug down deep, I wouldn't have known that he met um, Leonard Bernstein as a kid, and they were on a bus together talking about their dreams. If it's not in any, any, any you know, simple Wikipedia you could find. I did that through digging and finding out. And I, it was a really cool part of, part of the show, him talking about Leonard Bernstein and what it was like as a kid to meet him and talk to him on a bus. And I thought that was a really revealing moment. Um, also uh, talking about, you know, with, with, with other artists, you know, seminal moments in their life. I did that through research. So I was always prepared. I think Charlie is. I think James Lipton is. I think those are people that I, I've always felt uh, were very prepared for their shows. I love the art of interviewing. I love interviewing. I love people and I find that people who are accomplished in all walks of life. I just interviewed a, a mezzo-soprano. I know nothing about opera, but I've, I've researched it. And I know a lot now more than I ever because it's part of my educational process. I interviewed a, a five-star chef, a famous chef named Joachim Splichel, a, a German chef in, in Los Angeles who is a, a very, very famous celebrity chef. I know nothing about cooking, but I learned something about it. And it, it was interesting to me and I, to, to be part of that journey of education education and and educating myself is really what it's all about for me for me it's storytelling you tell great stories you because of your preparation are able to allow people the platform to tell great stories this great story that you're a part of there's a movie called i see the crowd roar it's the story of william dummy hoy you narrate that tell me about that project yeah it's a brand new um dvd just came out and by the way um Folks can get it if you just go online. You can find it. You can purchase it. It's a fantastic story. Uh, this was a ball player by the name of William Dummy Hoy. They called him Dummy because that, in those days, were unfortunately the only way people who were deaf were described. And um, I think it's, it, it's kind of very telling about what, what kind of people we were back in the 19th and early 20th century. But he was the first deaf Major League Baseball player. He's also not just famous because he was deaf. He was a remarkably talented and skilled baseball player. He stole almost 600 bases. He had 2,000 hits. He had a career batting average of about 300. He, 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 uh, he won a pennant on the last play of a 19, going back to 1903. But he couldn't. He, he he was most significantly. He was widely credited for creating the hand signals that are still used in baseball. When when he started his career, like for example, the umpire would shout, you know, strike or ball. But when he was up to bat, he couldn't obviously hear that. So he'd ask the third base coach to ra- third base coach to raise his right arm and indicate a strike 
or, 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 or a ball. So that really was one of the biggest developments in baseball is hand signals. And it's still, you know, you still see it on third base coaches and, and umpires and things like that. People are trying to get him in the Hall of Fame. But this is a documentary. I did narrate it, and it's called I Hear the, I See the Crowd Roar, I should say. And it's, uh, it's about the first deaf Major League Baseball player. And I'm on, also mentioned that Sprint has uh, been, a, been a big part of this, too, in, in terms of being one of the sponsors of this thing. And uh, I'm very inspired by it because, you know, people don't know how many famous, accomplished people um, were deaf. You know, everybody from Beethoven to Jane Lynch from Glee to Rob Lowe, who's a very famous actor right now, and, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of people. Of course, Helen Keller was deaf and blind and became an accomplished writer. So there's so many things that people can do. The human spirit can do so much if given an opportunity, and I, that was what was inspiring to me. Roy, before I let you go, tell us about some of the other projects that you're working on. I know you're working on a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I do personal appearances all over America. I've done it for 22 years. I have a kind of a, a variety-oriented show. Anybody who'd like to watch it or watch some clips from it can simply go to RoyFirestone.com. Additionally, I have a brand-new show in Los Angeles, as I mentioned before, for public broadcasting, not unlike a Charlie Rose show, but really in some ways completely uh, different in some ways, too, because it's a very performance-oriented show. It's more like uh, the actor's studio-type show, but, but for music and composers and songwriters and artists. Uh, and it's called L.A. Tonight, and we've had as guests people like, and people can watch it even as we can speak. If they want to go online right after the show or after your broadcast, they can go to kcet.org and go to Roy Firestone L.A. tonight, and they can watch any of the shows. We've got Burt Backrug, Chris Bode, David Foster, Andre Agassi. We have the list of, of both celebrity uh, sports people, music people, composers, writers. Debbie Allen was with us. We had Steve Tyrell, the, the loud singer, the you know the cabaret singer, I should say. So anyway, it, it's a really brand new project. I'm very excited about it. If it goes to series and we think it will, it's going to be on every single night in public broadcasting, which is really a dream come true for me. Roy, keep up the great work. You are on my Mount Rushmore of broadcasters. It's really a pleasure to finally get to speak with you, and uh, best of success with everything that you're working on. Well, thanks again, and thanks for having me on. I'd say all the folks in the, the Oregon area, one of my favorite areas, and all the people... Uh, who are listening in the broadcast. I appreciate it very much. No problem. I remember several years ago you did uh, something with the Blazers. They had a a gala of some sort, and you were up here for that. I certainly did. I did it twice, as a matter of fact. I I hosted the the, the big gala at the Rose Garden, and uh, and it was great. We had a great time. I remember the Blazers very fondly. We We had a great time up there. Roy, take care. Best of success to you, and again, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up. As long as you love me, I'll be platinum, I'll be silver, I'll be gold. As long as you Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, 
Thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, uh, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We're back in the 2012 Summer Olympics quickly approaching. Joining me on the phone now, two-time gold medalist, beach volleyball star, Carrie Walsh. Carrie, thanks for taking the time to join me. How are you? I'm so good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. No problem. So you are in Saratoga, California today with Oakley to support the company's Global Beyond Reason campaign. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, I first of all, I'm in my hometown. It's just, you couldn't pay me, you know, to stay away from this place. I love it so much. And to be up here with Oakley and supporting this campaign, and there's a big unveiling of this piece of art that this amazing artist, Les, came up with in collaboration with myself. It's just, it's a really special day. And, you know, like you said, London is right around the corner. And I want to go and kick butt. And there is inspiration left and right for me here. And um, Oakley has become such a big part of my family. And working with them has been a dream come true because it's a true collaboration. And so to have a really fun event, to get inspired for London, and to be able to see my family here, my favorite place in the world, it's a good day. Yeah, talk about this art. Les Rogers, renowned New York City artist, has created something called Six Feet of Sunshine. What does that look like? Oh, it looks like me. <laughs> he he did an amazing job. You know, we had we had a thirty to forty five minute conversation and he was just you know, just asking me about myself and growing up and my childhood and what inspires me and what I hope to accomplish and you know, it's he did such an amazing job and I'm just so proud to be part of his work because I, I just I feel like he captured my essence, which sounds kinda of cheesy but it's it's I I wish you guys could see it and I think you will see it in a little bit, but he did an amazing job. It's, it's life-size. It's huge. It's strong. It's physical. There's gold in there. There's red, white, and blue. And it's just he did an amazing job. You got to tweet that out at Carrie Lee Walsh, your uh, your Twitter account, right? Uh, if, if I'm allowed to, I will be tweeting and Facebooking, and that thing will be everywhere. So keep your eye out. But so no, he did a great job, and the, the whole concept of this of this campaign, Beyond Reason, is something that I, I literally think about every single day. You know, what can I do? What am I not doing? to ensure that I will be my best in London. And you have to go beyond reason. And so that's why it was so cool to see this thing come to life because it's exactly what I'm striving for. You've teamed with Misty May Trainer Beach Volleyball. You guys won gold in Athens in 2004. You won again in Beijing in 2008. How hard is it to gear up another time this summer in London and try and do it again? You know, it's it's definitely challenging. It's challenging not because, you know, we've been there before, been there, done that, not because we're older, but it's challenging because, you know, it's just the gravity of, of the Olympics. It's the biggest stage for beach volleyball, you know, and we we feel the pressure that we put on ourselves to go out there and do what we, you know, we've done twice before. But the world obviously doesn't want that to happen. They want to all beat us down, and, and we're working every day to make sure that we achieve our goals and dreams in London um, but you know, it's it's really sentimental. Misty and I will be done as a partnership after this after this Olympic Games, and that is heartbreaking. But it's also really exciting because, you know, we're, we're ready for our next stage. But um, it's so many things all in one and challenging, 
for sure, but, you know, we've always stepped up to challenges, so I'm not so worried. You're a mom now. How has that changed your life and your training and just everything? If you have an hour, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, being a mom has changed me personally in every single way. It's definitely, um, you know, it's my priority now. I'm a mom, and, and my boys come number one. And I'm so much more inspired, and I feel stronger mentally and physically, definitely emotionally. You know, I just, when you have balance in your life, I think you're able to perform better. And so that's what I'm seeing in my job as a beach volleyball player. But my boys, Joey and San Andrew, are the biggest gift I've ever had in my life, and I want to go and make them proud. Um, Training-wise, you know, I have to be way more efficient. I I can't devote every single waking hour to volleyball. Um, But, you know, I'm efficient. I work hard, and, and then I play with my boys. It's a good life. How much time do you have to spend with Misty? I mean, does she live in the same proximity, or do you train on your own? She trains on her own, and then you guys get together for training. She's so cute. No, we're on the beach four days a week at least together. Um, all of our beach training is together. And then after that, like as far as you know, weight training and Pilates and physical therapy, we do all that on our own. So, you know, we trust each other. We've been doing this for so long, we, and we know each other works so hard, and we're on the same page that we, you know, we're comfortable working together on the beach and then high-fiving, say, go kick butt, go kick your own butt in the gym, and then I'll see you tomorrow. But we, we hang out a lot. Um, you know, when we travel, we're together almost 24-7. And then um, when we're home, we have no time. I'm a, you know, I'm a busy mom, and she has her husband who's on the Dodgers, and they're, you know, she's a devoted wife. So um, we don't see each other much at home unless we're on the court, but, but we still stay close. You guys, I, I've watched you a lot over the last few years in the Olympics, and I've got to say, your abs are unbelievable. I mean, how do you get your abs like that? You know, I have to live my life in an Oakley bikini, so <laughs> it's very inspiring, <laughs> let me tell you. You know, I, I mean, I think genetics obviously play a role, but that's if you don't have a strong core in our sport, you're in trouble, and so that's a huge priority for me. Um, for all of us, is to have a strong foundation. And, you know, I do a lot of Pilates. I've become such a, just a big fan of Pilates, and it's it's changed my body, you know, since having my boys. That Having babies definitely changes you forever, and um, it's helped me come back stronger because of it. So it's a priority. I need to look good in my bikini to play well. That's right. I'm sure you get a lot of comments about uh, the apparel on the beach, but you know there's some great sponsor opportunities. I know Oakley being one of them for you as you're out there playing. Yeah, you know I I love my uniform. You know I people like to try to give me grief about it, but I I feel really empowered. I feel like I'm projecting a really healthy image for all the you know young kids and ladies out there. Um, it's a very sporty bikini. It's it's my uniform. It doesn't make sense for me to go out there and play in shorts and a shirt. It's too hot. You know, I, I want to be streamlined. I want to go out there and kick butt. And um, the organic, you know, way is to play in a bikini. It just makes sense. We're on a beach. <laughs> so um, I think people, once they watch and see what we do and realize that we play in these crazy temperatures and what we're asking of our bodies, I think they understand. But, um, you know, it's not for everyone. Just a few minutes left with Kerry Walsh, Olympic volleyball star. You've got a children's foundation that you started called Chase the Stars. Talk about that. I read about it, and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I'm just so proud. We've we've had this uh, foundation running for a couple of years now, and we work with amazing charities like the Ronald McDonald House and Boys and Girls Clubs throughout America. Um, and, you know, basically, I've been... I've had an embarrassment of riches in my life. I've been given every opportunity. You know, my parents had enough finances to get me everywhere, um, to allow me to go to camps and do all these things. I've had great health. And so for all those kids who haven't had all the, um, you know, chances that I've had or the, re- or the 
opportunities I've had, I, I want to give back to these kids because, you know, it's so important to introduce things to kids and to show them, you know, to, to show them what to aspire to and what they could aspire to, you know, whether you want to be a doctor, a musician, a, a beach volleyball player, it's just cool to get in front of kids and to say, you know what, if you work hard and if you use your resources, you can do it. And so that's why I'm so proud of our foundation. And we've, we've made a lot of, you know, happy kids out there that I'm really proud of it. Well, I've got a seven and a half year old daughter, so I thank you for being a good role model for her. My pleasure. I, I, I take my responsibility as a role model so seriously. And, you know, I, I'm 33 now, but I, I honestly feel like that 10-year-old I was when I first started playing. And I remember the girls I look up to and the women and the men. And it, it was really important, you know, and it just they stuck with me and they're still with me. So for me to be in this position now, it, it's I'm so honored. And uh, I'm jealous. I want my little girl. <laughs> I have my two little princes. I need my little girl now. <laughs> well, I hope you get a little girl because there's nothing like a little girl. Hey, let me ask you, when you go over to London, obviously you're there on business to win gold, but you've gotten to go to Athens. You've gone to China. Is there anything that you want to do in London while you're there just uh, to take in the experience of what may be your final Olympic Games? You know, I, I do. I want to live it all. You know, I want to live the competition. I want to be ultimately prepared. But I do want to enjoy the Olympic spirit in the city of London. I've never hung out in London before. Never, ever. I've been to Heathrow, and Heathrow gives me hives. It stresses me out so much. So I'll be <laughs> excited to get outside the airport and hang out. You know, I want to support my, you know, fellow Team USA athletes and their quest for gold and, and for glory. And I, I want to see the city. So we're going to have, you know, about 20 people over there, family and friends, and I'll be hanging out with them and being with my boys and my husband. And just really enjoying it. You know, I'm I'm hoping not to be done after this Games. I, Miss Tina, I think, as a team will be done because she wants to retire. But um, I, I want to carry on and, and play in Rio. So, um, but you never know. Like you said, this could be your last. So I want to I want to enjoy every single moment and go out on top if, if this is going out. For people like me who have never experienced walking through the tunnel into the stadium for opening and closing ceremonies, I imagine the goosebumps are, are awesome. Oh my goodness! I yeah, I don't have the words to tell you how cool it is. It's just, it's it's at once the most inspiring and humbling thing ever. You know, you're walking in with Team USA, some of the best athletes in the entire world, legitimately, and you know you're all under the same flag. They're my teammates, and that's exactly how it feels. This got goosebumps thinking about it, and it's just you know it's it's what it's about. It's the Olympics is so much bigger than me as an individual and it's it's it is about team usa and representing our country well and going out there and giving it your 100 percent every single second out there and i'm um, walking in for opening ceremonies is something that i will never forget sitting on top of the podium hearing a national anthem is something i will never forget something that i, I need to make happen in london to make sure i will never forget how cool it is I think it's great when the athletes go to the other events and support each other. I know a lot of athletes went and saw Michael Phelps in China, and he came to other people's events. Is there anyone that you want to go see specifically in London? You know, I, I have friends on the indoor volleyball teams. I have friends on the water polo teams. Um, I definitely want to see USA basketball. Uh, I'm just a fan of the Olympics, so I, I literally have only seen water polo and indoor volleyball in my past three Olympic experiences, so I would love to branch out, maybe see some track, maybe go cheer on Phelps, because I think he's going to be done after this, so um, I don't really care. I'm not going to be choosy. You know, I want to <laughs> support Team USA, and if it fits in my timeline, then I'll be there. Carrie, I really appreciate your time. You can follow Oakley's Beyond Reason campaign on Twitter at hashtag Beyond Reason. You can follow Carrie Walsh on Twitter at Carrie Lee Walsh. Are you going to be tweeting from uh, London, I hope? 
I will be tweeting. I will be on Facebook. And I want to mention one more thing, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, one of the coolest things of this Beyond Reason campaign is that people, the public, can share their own Beyond Reason stories um, at the Oakley Beyond Reason social hub. So I'm encouraging people to go out there. I want to read what other people are doing on, on a daily basis to you know, to become the best they can be. Um, hearing stories like that absolutely inspires me and, and makes me work hard on the days where I'm not feeling it. Carrie, I really appreciate your time. Best of luck in London this summer, and uh, let's stay in touch. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages, and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Well, we hope you enjoyed this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks to Jim Etzel from Sports One, Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter, Christine Brennan from USA Today, Vince Papali, subject of the movie Invincible. Always cool when Mark Wahlberg plays you in a movie. Roy Firestone and two-time gold medal winning Olympic volleyball player Carrie Walsh. A reminder, you can download this show on iTunes. Just go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio, or you can get to that icon off of the front page of our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. I want to thank our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Jared Melzer, Doug Zanger, and Max Waterman. You can follow me on Twitter, at SB Radio. Again, please consider contributing to our Kickstarter campaign. You can learn all the information about that on the homepage of our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. It's a 30-day campaign. We're trying to keep this podcast alive, and we need your help doing that with a financial contribution. So please consider it if you consider our content valuable. Have a great week. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. We'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Baby, kiss me Fill my heart with song And let me sing forevermore You are... Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes 
and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.